We'd like to thank our sponsor, PGHockey.com. If you haven't had a chance to check out their referee gear, head over to PGHockey.com. PG's padded pants retains its form after you wear it, so you don't need to tape anything after your game. You'll look great game after game. It's also incredibly easy to wash the pants. Check out PG's shin pads and shin tights as well. Use the coupon code HOTCAST to get 10% off your next PG order. Podcast, the Hockey Officials Podcast. My name is Sheldon Kotick, and I'm here with my co-host, Larry Krause. Thank you, Sheldon. And on the, uh, what do you call it, the hotline, PG Hockey Hotline? Sure. We have Kirk Wood. Kirk Wood is a uh, former AHL official. He's been all over the place. He's He's been in Canada, the U.S. Uh, he's, um, yeah, he's done it all. And he's not celebrating Thanksgiving this particular weekend. I am so celebrating Thanksgiving this You are weekend. not celebrating Thanksgiving this weekend because you're celebrating Thanksgiving with me in November, are you not? Isn't that <laughs> when everyone both. celebrates Thanksgiving, Kirk? Say that again. We're we're celebrating Thanksgiving next month, are we not? In November, isn't that when everyone celebrates Thanksgiving? That's when our friends south of the border do, and that's when you and I will. But my family will celebrate it this month too. I don't that's think there's any the problem being back in Canada. Yeah, right? I don't think there's any problem with celebrating twice personally. <laughs> You're finally finished the leftovers by the time November comes around. Absolutely. Bring it on. (laughs) Right on. Actually, Kirk, why don't you give us an introduction? Uh, What have you been up to the last, I don't know, 30 years or so? Started out in Ontario, made your way around North America. Share the story a little bit for our listeners. You make me sound old. I'm not quite that old. Uh, so yeah, my name's Kirk Wood. I've officiated. I started officiating in nineteen in the early nineties, ninety ninety one, somewhere around there in uh, in the Ottawa District Hockey Association. Worked minor hockey for a few years. Uh, got some opportunities to move up and work some tier two junior A hockey, uh, some junior B hockey, and then some Canadian University hockey. And uh, in the summer of '96, I was uh, offered a job working as a as a linesman in the WHL. I moved to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, from Ottawa, and I worked two years in the WHL. And uh, then had the opportunity to uh, work in the East Coast Hockey League. Andy Van Helmond hired me as a linesman and I moved to the U.S. Uh, spent a couple of years in that league and then was work, also worked in the American Hockey League. So I split my assignments between those two leagues. And then I stayed involved um, after I left full-time hockey work as an official. Stayed involved for another eight, nine years uh, until I retired from pro hockey at, in the uh, 2008-2009 season. Worked my last game in the AHL in Houston. Um, in 2009 and um, transitioned to a couple of other career jobs in the midst there that kind of took me all over North America and now back to Canada. We came back here a year ago this past July. So out of all the different barns that you worked in, is Moose Jaw your favorite? The old crush can is gone. I I probably needed to go. Uh, I did enjoy working there. I wouldn't say that it was my favorite. You know, you have favorites for different reasons, right? You have favorites for buildings that just kind of wow you and then you have favorites of buildings that are just kind of like the wow Oh, this is a hockey rink, really. So uh, some of the small town barns in Saskatchewan would be Chaplin. just because of, yeah, that would be one because of the Salt proximity case. of the fans uh, or the hundred watt uh, light bulbs and pie plates that, that hovered over the ice surface or the, the beam that if you skated too close to the sideboards, you might smack your head on. Was it Rockport that used to throw a fish in the intermissions? 
You know, I don't know. There's, there's so many things that happened toss. over the years that everybody has their own spin on something, whether it was their local version of the octopus or yeah. uh, a hybrid Zamboni that was really a, a Case IH tractor with a water tank on the back or whatever. Now, Kirk, are there any arenas that you choose not to ever work in again? Um, if I had to go back to some barns, I, I wouldn't necessarily look forward to it. I don't want to name names of buildings because I can hurt people's feelings. But I've had some buildings where like there was one building in the ECHL that had a, oh, I don't know, a 1948 or 50 or 52 era Zamboni that uh, had wooden boards that actually came up through the, <laughs> the the chute and pulled the snow into the bin. And that thing ran on gasoline and it filled the building with a haze that was about six feet off the ice. And me being six, seven on skates made it difficult breathing after uh, after the intermission. So I wouldn't go back to that barn, but I'll also protect their anonymity. <laughs> Nasty. Not to mention the vibe out in the Chilliwack Prospera Arena from oh, yeah, March that's an of this bar. past year. Yeah. yeah. Is there some vibes that you sense walking into an arena are different than others? Uh, you know, when you have an incident like I had last year, you you maybe do look at a building differently. I had an unfortunate incident um, late in the season uh, in the BCHL last year where a player um, launched me into the end boards and I was injured and uh, it was at the end of the game. So, um, so you know, if you go back into that building, maybe you feel a little bit different about it or a certain anxiety about being down in that corner again with your back to the middle yeah, of the ice. Yeah, I was just thinking you probably won't turn your back as easy with those guys. The southeast corner of Prospera is now known as the Kirkwood corner. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's like a little pink dot on the board. So <laughs> they, they've memorialized my, uh, my collision with the, with the end boards. Kirkwood's helmet was here. Yeah, yeah. Although I wish they'd chosen a color other than pink, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Maybe that's their way of indicating that I was a little soft on my feet. What are you up to now? Uh, so hockey-wise now, I uh, I work with BC Hockey. I was offered a position over the summer to work as the officiating coordinator for Lower Mainland West. We have about half the officials in the branch uh, are located in the Lower Mainland, and I have about roughly one-third of half. So I have about 800 to 850 officials in 13 or 14 minor hockey associations that I work closely with the referees and chiefs to develop uh, and deliver the officiating program to uh, the folks that Larry calls our constituents, which I think is a great word. And uh, so I work with the referees and chief. I mentor young officials when it comes to tournaments. We send out supervisors with BC Hockey to tournaments. I'll be going to the Vancouver T-Birds this weekend uh, to supervise our, our folks there and uh, to help them develop on their path as a Hockey Canada officials. Now, Kirk, you um, you alluded to being responsible for a number, a great number of officials. We've got 4,500 officials in the province of British Columbia and the Yukon. You're responsible for 800 of those. You must have support and help in in looking after and being responsible for a staff of eight or constituents of 800. There must be a massive staff that work with you in assisting and helping and guiding and mentoring and teaching and equipping 800 constituents. And I'm assuming they're all paid. Yeah. Uh, so probably two misconceptions. No, they're not all paid. And no, <laughs> it's not a massive staff. It's a dedicated team of very committed people. Uh, so, you know, you have, first of all, our, we have to tip our hat to the local association referees in chief who 
who work hard to develop their officials to navigate the intricacies of board dynamics and parent and coach dynamics within associations and complaints about officials and officiating in general. And so first and foremost, I tip my hat to them because they do a lot year in and year out. And many of them have been around for uh, several years in their position. And we have lots of new folks too, young guys uh, like Tyler Goodall, who is uh, the referee in chief in uh, Port Coquitlam. Um, so he's, you know, he's contributing to the program there. And um, we have a team of supervisors with BC Hockey with the above minor program. We hired some supervisors over the summer all of them uh, current or former officials, and uh, they maintain their their Hockey Canada um, officiating certification, but they may or may not be on the ice. And uh, so it's not a huge staff, but it's a committed group of folks. Very nice. Well, this week, I wanted to talk a little bit about rules. Uh, last week we talked about reputation and uh, first impressions and that kind of thing. And the theme this week will be rules and the fact that as an official, you actually need to know them. Yeah, and, yeah it uh, helps for sure. It, it helps. And the reason we bring it up is if you happen to see the Seattle Seahawks game, this past uh, Monday, there's a little episode in the end zone where a guy batted it out of the bounds and I saw it on TV and I was like, oh, yeah, good play. He batted it out of bounds. Now, I'm not a football guy uh, for the most part. I played a little bit in high school, but uh, I didn't realize that was actually illegal. And the referee or the end zone umpire or whatever they're called uh, in that spot, perfect view chose not to call it. The the NFL actually had to come out and say he knew the rule. Mm. He knew the rule. He just didn't feel it was intentional. And it reminded me of a few times where I was on the ice either as a, as a linesman or as a referee, and you have that brain fart where it's like, okay, I know that wasn't right, but I can't remember in my head what the penalty is. Yeah. Just something didn't seem right. My arm went up because of reflex. Now what do I do? Yeah. And uh, I'm one of those guys. I I know my stuff. I know the rules pretty good. Um, I, I won a lot of money over the years betting other officials that, uh, that they were wrong and uh, I was right and I made a lot of money. But... Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. It's uh, clinic season. I always get one wrong uh, on the exam, and it's always something that is really silly, and it's because I didn't read the question properly. But uh, what what do you guys think? What what is your uh, what is your sense on uh, officials that are going out there? Do you feel that? there is a lack of understanding of the rules or a lack of knowledge of the rules these days? Well, what's fascinating, Sheldon, is just um, that specific incident in Seattle on a Monday night. Again, they get a a great call and a break um, to win the game, but it was um, up to more than just one official to make that call, and, and um, and one official didn't see it and could have easily overruled uh, the one official that did see it called it his way, um, thought it was unintentional. Clearly on the video, it is intentional. Well, he admitted he did it on purpose. Absolutely. So it's Cam Chancellor's way of, of winning the game for his team, which was brilliant. Um, congratulations to him for, for doing a, a something that um, that was obviously going to be a, a touchdown to win the game for, for Detroit. Well, and he didn't realize it was against the rules. No, not at all. The player didn't know it. No. 
No. I, I bet you 99.9% of the football fans out there didn't Absol- know that rule. Absolutely. But that referee should have known oh, that rule. Without a doubt. And, and tonight's guest, Mr. Kirk Wood, who has made a career of being a linesman, I'd be fascinated to hear from Kirk, um, who switched when he moved back to the lower mainland and chose to be a referee rather than a linesman. The transition. Uh, the expectations on the officials in the BC Hockey League and any junior hockey league is to get the rule right 100% of the time. Uh, some would remember a situation in Nanaimo a number of years ago where a game had to be played again because of a botched call. And certainly um, with with Kirk, um, and, and I would ask you, Kirk, you know, you... you consciously chose to come back as a referee you could have easily been a linesman you could have easily called offsides and icings and puck out of play and glove hand passes and and assist and guide the referees on staff but you chose to wear the red armbands how has that transformation changed the way you perceive the game and the way you call the game it's definitely changed like it's a totally different position i actually made the switch um, several years ago when I was still working some lower level college hockey in the U S and, um, so the more time I spent refereeing, the more my perspective on the ice changed. I became less aware of what the linesmen were doing, not oblivious to what was going on, but not as involved, not looking at that part of the ice, not looking at that aspect of the play, focusing my attention on the puck carrier, the area around the puck carrier, much more intentional about the goalkeeper, um, trying to be aware of, you know, when players were behind the play, et cetera, especially working in the four-man system, um, being aware of my area of responsibility versus my partners, and at the same time being available with my eyes to support him uh, when things got crazy in his vicinity. So it's, uh, it is a completely different way of looking at the game. And obviously for the referee, the referee has to manage both the rules and their application uh, in terms of penalties and whatnot, but he also has to manage... Uh, the linesman, uh, not to manage the linesman particularly, but to deal with the situations that arise when linesmen make calls, when linesmen interpret rules, um, because it's the referee that the coaches are going to turn to and, and yell at, or the referee is going to have to step in to take the heat off of his linesman. So um, I, you, can't, you can't know all the rules well enough. I mean, I've studied the rule book for 25 years, and I still learn something every year. And Sheldon, like you said, I always get one wrong. And I got one wrong again this year, although I've been poured back over my exam and I just can't figure out which one it is, which for a personality like mine, I like to know what I know. Uh, it bothers me that I can't figure out which one it is. So, uh, But we don't want to see those situations come up in games where we're making rule interpretation errors. Um, it's, you know, for, I mean, it's not the NHL and it's not big money, but it is important to the people that we serve. And those are the minor hockey players and the coaches and the parents and the associations. So we need to uh, control what we can control and we can control our own knowledge of the rules. Now, as a supervisor, when I'm out there watching uh, guys on the ice, it, it often happens when I'm supervising, I get to watch a team of officials where there's confusion. And the younger the guys are, the more often it happens. But um, there's there's often confusion where one guy thinks he knows what that rule is, and then he's being talked out of it by a couple other guys. And I know this has happened at, at a high level of hockey as well, where oh, yeah. um, as a as a referee, I had a linesman say, "No, no, no, it's this." I'm like, yep. uh, "No, I know this rule," and vice versa. Whereas a linesman, I'd, I'd help out a referee. And as a linesman, I'm going to let the referee make that call. But as a referee, I have to put my 
um, my word on the line and say, no, this is what the call is. Now, yeah, as a I, had a, I was going to say, I had a situation last year where what you just described happened. We had a goalkeeper um, contacted by a player in the crease, an opposing player in the crease. But, you know, the trouble was the opposing player was put there by a legal check um, by a defender. And the player lands in the crease and the goalie wasn't impinged or in, in, in any way. The rebound comes out and uh, another player puts the puck in the net as this kid who's been dumped in the crease by a defender is getting up. And my linesmen were insisting that I had to disallow that goal. And uh, so we, we conferred and I said, OK, so what you guys are telling me is we're going to disallow an otherwise legally scored goal because an attacking player was legally checked, dumped into the crease, and in no way impacted the goalie's ability to make a save. And they were like, yeah, he's in the crease, it can't be a goal. And that's where you know a, a guy who is younger, perhaps less confident, and perhaps less knowledgeable of the rules would be swayed by that. And I knew that I knew I was right. And so what I told them was, guys, we are not disallowing a legal goal where a legal check resulted in a player in the crease that did not illegally impinge on the goalie's ability. And we got the call right, but it could have easily gone the other way with a with a young kid who hasn't got the experience. Now I'm not sure what the supervisor or supervision forms look like now, but is it still a zero to zero to ten range on the different areas and rules? Is usually one of them. Yeah, they are, Sheldon. They're very much the same today as they they have been in the past. We focus on everything that goes on on the ice, from awareness to positioning to skating to signals to. Um, to um, uh, flow of play, pursuit of puck. We uh, we deal with every aspect, and of course rules is a big part of it as well, getting those rules right and proper application of the rules. We um, we have to ensure that, that we're reading the rule book and understanding the rule, but knowing the heart of the rule. Uh, the process for any any rule change and, and the majority of the rules that are, that are in the book is a group of people getting together and saying, how can we make the game better? Now we use the words safe and fair hockey. Everything falls under two words, safe and fair. But all the rules in the rule book, they got there for a specific reason. And it's a bunch of people, just like the three of us are doing now, sitting around a table and we're talking about rules and we're giving those to Hockey Canada and saying, these are the things that we feel are important to our district and our area. Let's see if we can enhance the game and improve the game with a rule change. And the rule change gets gets sent to the Hockey Canada offices there's people that are um, that are wise and and um, and and uh, experienced enough to take those rules and and hopefully um, get them in the book and within a year or maybe two they um, they become a rule that that enhances the game and makes it better. So it it um, from a standpoint of an on ice official, these things are invaluable. They um, having an understanding of the of the rule is is first and foremost, but then applying it. And knowing the heart of the rule is the second part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. The And some things are open to interpretation in our game. And sometimes we have to interpret the actions of players where it's not entirely clear what the player's intended action was. But um, so we've got to do, you know, like you said, Larry, safe and fair. And I also throw in, you know, I use the word legal. Do, do the rules explicitly permit or prohibit the action of the player? So safe, fair and legal is kind of the mantra that I'll live or die by. Uh, on the ice. And if the answer to one of those is no, then we've got to make a decision. Is it safe? No, it's not safe. Well, we should step into that. Is it fair? No, it's not fair. Was it legal? No, it wasn't legal. That's where 
we're paid to arbitrate those decisions. Yeah, and the subjective nature is whether the person broke the rule, not whether the rule should be there or not. Exactly. Or I don't want to make that call because the person may get suspended or uh, it may... It may affect the game. We're not judge and jury. We're simply enforcing the rules of the game. Yeah, and and so I think uh, we talked about it in our in our clinic here, where guys are instead of uh, giving a game misconduct to a coach who deserves a to get booted, booted, they're giving a game ejection because they think, okay, well, this isn't as big of a deal if I give him a game ejection. Well, you can't give a coach a game a game ejection. So when I when I'm if I'm supervising that game and I have a referee do that, that's zero out of 10 for the rules because that's a deliberate um, or that's not knowing your rule. And what's fascinating, Sheldon, with that specific rule itself, the game ejection, again, that was a bunch of people sitting around a table saying we have got to eliminate stick the sticks and the stick fouls in the game. We've got to allow the players to, to use their speed and to be faster, quicker, stronger on the ice without being impeded, without being held back, without being chopped and whacked and cross-checked and abused on the ice. We want to ensure that they have every opportunity to score goals and make great passes. And that's where the stick and stick ejection came from, is, is or the game ejection for stick infractions. That's where it came from as we were sitting around the table discussing, okay, well, how are we going to do that well let's let's make three stick infractions high stick cross check slash butt ending and spearing those are the five that qualify for a game ejection you get any any three of those in any single game of course you get a game ejection and that the heart of that the whole purpose of that was to eliminate multiple infractions by the same player in the same game and and interestingly when i talked about uh, being a linesman before and arguing with the ref, I remember arguing with the ref who was who was uh, kicking the guy out with a game ejection because he got the double minor for butt ending it and he was treating it as a double. He was treating it as two infractions. So he had a slash and then the butt butt end, and he's like, "Okay, that's the three. We're done." And so you're kicking a guy out. You're kicking a guy out who should not be out of the game yet. Hey, Larry, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think rule, we we talked earlier about rule knowledge and the scale that we use. I, I believe the rule knowledge scale is actually only a five point scale. It's possible, yeah. And yeah, so, I think you're right. Uh, you know, not to say that it's any less. It just. It, to, to have a, a higher point scale system, a zero to 10, gives us a much wider range, right, to be in the positive. When we get down to a five-point scale, if we hit a three on rule knowledge, man, we are right on the limit, right on the buffer of not being suitably prepared for the game that we're calling. And so using a smaller scale shows you how important we consider rule knowledge to be. And we always have to remember that the people we're making decisions for and against are impacted by these decisions, and it can sway a game. So, you know, young ladies, young men, know your rules, study the rule book, learn from situations, learn from the mistakes that you see, and uh, be in the rule book constantly throughout the year. And that's an excellent point, Kirk, because that ball would have been on the one yard line and it would have been Detroit with four downs to get it in the end zone rather than the Seahawks taking possession on the 20. With with very, barely any time on the clock. Absolutely. Would Game's not have over. That game. Game's over. Cutting that ball gap back. And- I think in hockey, too, I think we have to be careful that we don't try to get too involved in the psychology of what's going on. I think we have to lean more heavily on what actually occurred versus what was the player trying to do. When we start trying to interpret 
uh, events from a psychological perspective, we're getting into an area where it's like, well, you know, what did he intend to do? Well, I don't know what he intended to do necessarily. I do know what he did or what she did. And it's, that's a safer place to be making determinations as opposed to, well, I don't think they did that on purpose. Yeah. And because uh, the players will trick you too. Absolutely. I mean, we see, we've seen this in soccer. The World Cup, Women's World Cup was here last year. I was at the World Cup in Sao Paulo, Brazil two years ago. And, uh, well, not quite two years ago. And the amount of diving. Well, you know, if we start penalizing that, we don't have to then interpret uh, a whole lot of, well, I don't think he actually dove, etc. It's like, you know, the checking from behind rule. I, the minor penalty for checking from behind. Was it intentional? I don't believe it was. The degree of violence was, was minimal. Arms were not extended. They weren't thrown violently into the boards. Nonetheless, contact was from the rear, so it's a minor penalty for checking from behind in a game misconduct. Well, I don't want to take any more of uh, your time and or listeners um, for this week, but uh, thank you very much for coming on, Kurt. Uh, and, thanks for the invite. Uh, and uh, we'd love to have you again. We will see you in a couple weeks. Thanks, guys. This podcast was brought to you by PGHockey.com. If you head over to PGHockey.com, there is a contest available just for our audience. Go to PGHockey.com slash podcast. You have a chance to win a pair of padded pants. That's over $150 value just for our podcast listeners. Thank you again, PGHockey.com, the makers of the best padded pants out there.